0: James chapter 1. Before we get started, we better make sure that we are indeed in fellowship to make sure that this is a profitable time under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we do that through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together for a few minutes of silent prayer. And then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for this uh, wonderful privilege that we have to gather together as a body of believers and fellowship around the teaching of your word. We pray that as we study your word tonight, that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. As we discuss and study what you have said about the importance of faith and how to rely upon you, the importance of our confidence in you is foundational to the exercise of all of the stress busters. And we pray that you would help us to see that and understand the dynamics of the faith rest drill. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying testing and adversity in the context of James chapter 1 in verse 5. James writes, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and we have seen that that wisdom particularly is wisdom related to the application of doctrine in times of testing. So if you lack wisdom, if you lack the knowledge of doctrine that you need, let him ask of God, this is the kind of prayer, Lord, it's just a prayer of positive volition. Lord, I need to know how to handle this, this trial, and we know that if a believer is positive, that God will get the right information to him uh, one way or another. Let him ask of God, and that brings in the whole issue of prayer. Iteo is the verb there. It's a, um, the, the imperative mood indicates that this is not an option for the believer. This is a mandate that if you hit a trial, you don't know what to do immediately, pray. Let him ask of God. On God's part, we saw that it's uh, grace all the way. God gives generously and without reproach. He is not going to just sort of uh, parsimoniously eke out the answer to the prayer but he will give it generously and no matter how many times you've hit that situation no matter how many times you have had to pray Lord I still haven't gotten the point yet uh, God is not going to reproach us he will give generously and without reproach but the condition is given in verse 6 let him ask by means of faith and we saw in the Greek, this is so important, I think, to understand uh, basic uh, Greek grammar concepts. And this is one of them. that You have the preposition in plus the dative of pistis, which is E-N and p p i s t i s. And this usually has the nuance of by means of. It indicates instrumentality. The instrument by which you have a successful prayer life is faith. And it is contrasted to doubting. So we stopped to take a look at the doctrine of prayer a couple of weeks ago, and then last week to begin a study of the faith rest drill to understand these underlying dynamics. 2 Corinthians 5.7 states the principle... For we, that is, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, walk. Walk is the metaphor for our day-to-day, moment-by-moment decisions in the Christian life. We walk, we live moment-by-moment, step-by-step, by by means of faith and not by sight. And sight here entails all the human viewpoint systems of learning. Whether it is rationalism, which bases uh, ultimate knowledge of... Of reality on the use of human intellect and reason as being sufficient for uh, resolving human problems, uh, or whether we're talking about empiricism, which relies upon human experience and study and analysis as the basis for uh, coming up with systems to resolve human problems, or the antithesis of the other two, which is mysticism, which relies on just sort of an irrational uh, impression. Uh, or intuition in order to resolve problems. Uh, in these two, rationalism and empiricism, the most dominant form of human viewpoint today dominating uh, thinking is psychology. And Christian psychology is really a misnomer. Because it's the psychology of Christianity, <coughs> those who call themselves Christian psychologists, their systems... Their psychological systems are the same as the non Christian. In fact, I read a wonderful quote that was given, uh, that was actually stated at a recent uh, convention of the uh, Christian Psychologists Association or something like that. And they actually stated that we are often asked if there is a distinction between Christian psychology or if we are Christian psychologists, and we're not really sure how to answer because we use the same systems. That are, are dominant in psychology, so they uh, they hesitatingly and grudgingly admit that even Christian psychologists are operating on the same human viewpoint principles as their non-Christian counterparts. So this is just an alternative and a comp- uh, a competing system of problem solving for the be- for the believer. And if the believer is going to have any success in his spiritual life, he has to operate on divine viewpoint and what we have studied as the ten stress busters. Adversity is inevitable. Everybody has it in all kinds of categories to one degree or another. Your adversity may come in your 20s. Somebody else's may come in their 60s or in their 70s. But everybody goes through uh, serious uh, adversity and uh, light adversity at one time or another, and if it is going to count spiritually, then you have to deal with it on the basis of divine viewpoint. Now, often people get the idea, well, uh, psychology or these other systems are helpful, and isn't that good because it, it... helps people to solve their problem. They're not positive to the Word. They really don't want to listen to the Bible. So at least if I send them to a psychi- psychologist or a psychiatrist, at least they'll be able to solve their problems and have a measure of stability and happiness in their life. They'll be able to function. Well, that might be and it might not be. But our role as believers is, to not, help pe- is not to help people function apart from the Word of God. Sounds like a harsh statement. Jay Adams made it in his book on self esteem. And he said, I would rather people die muddy drunk in the streets than to give them the least hope that they can solve their problems apart from total, absolute reliance on the Word of God. Now, if you think about that, it sounds harsh, but it's right. Because if people are out there solving their problems by going to AA, by going to this drug drug dependency program and uh, all of their human viewpoint systems, then they're learning to make their problems work with a little bit of doctrine here and a whole lot of human viewpoint here. And they, they leave thinking, golly, I did a great job and I solved the problems in my life and I can make life work on my own, rather than coming to grips with the fact that the Scripture says... Ultimately, when it's all said and done, the only thing that matters is that you faced and resolved your problems exclusively by dependence upon God. Because that's the only thing that's going to count for eternity, and that's the only thing that's going to count for divine good. And that's the only thing that is going to have any production value in terms of your spiritual life. And as a believer, that's what we're concerned about. We're not concerned about people functioning. We're not concerned about people finding some level of stability or somehow trying to make their life work apart from uh, dependence upon God. And that's the core of the faith rest drill. We walk by faith and not by sight. There is a radical contrast between the basis for the Christian way of life and everybody else's way of life. Always remember this principle. Get it down, memorize it, drill yourself on it over and over and over again. Faith means that God's Word, God's promises, and Bible doctrine are more real to you than any conflict, suffering, disappointment, heartache, or circumstance. Let me say that again. Faith means that God's Word, God's promises, and Bible doctrine are more real to you than any conflict, suffering, disappointment, heartache, or circumstance. That's when you truly are believing God's Word. That when you're all torn up inside and you're going through very difficult circumstances, and you want to do this and you want to do that, and you feel like this course of action is going to somehow alleviate all of the pressure, that when the truth of God's Word is more real to you than the pain you're feeling, Then that's walking by faith. So, we came last week to talking about the first stage of the faith rest drill. There are three stages. The first stage is mixing promises with faith, stage two is using doctrinal rationales, and stage three is coming to doctrinal conclusions. So, let's review stage one mixing promises with faith. Um, First of all, how do you claim a promise? That's what we're talking about here. Mixing promises with faith is how do you claim a promise? It's a simple procedure. A promise in the Word of God encapsulates doctrine at a very basic level. And by claiming a promise, what you are doing is taking your faith and mixing it with that promise to apply it to a particular situation. Point number one, you cannot apply what you do not know. You must know the promises of God before you can claim them you must know the promises of God and let me add accurately before you can claim them and I want to go to an Old Testament situation to illustrate this point turn with me to Numbers chapter 13 Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament and is the story of the Israelites disobedience to God and uh, wanderings in the wilderness. This takes place at Kadesh Barnea. I'll draw a rough map here. This is the Mediterranean coast here, the southeastern Mediterranean coast, uh, coast. Here is the Nile River. Uh, here's where the Suez Canal empties into the Red Sea down here. And this is the Sinai Peninsula. So the, the Jews, and over here we have the Gulf of Aqaba. The Jews came down here, if tradition is correct, to Mount Sinai. It was probably somewhere in that area. And then they headed north across the wilderness to go into the land that God had promised them. Up in this area, you have Kadesh Barnea on the boundary of the land that they're going to go into. And the Lord sends them out on a recon patrol. Now, recon patrol... Is a patrol where you're not necessarily to engage the enemy in combat. You're just in on a fact-finding mission. And their job was to go out and check out the, uh, the land. Now, I want you to pay very careful attention to what happens in verse 2 and exactly what God says in verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which... I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Okay, what is God saying? He says, number one, send out men, twelve of them, to spy out the land, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. There is a promise here. What is the promise? The promise is that I am going to give the land to Israel. It's an unconditional promise. Is the mission for the twelve men to spy out the land, did God say, send twelve men up there to see if they can do it? Is that what it says? No. What it says is, I'm going to give it to you. You just have them check it out. Because they're going to come back and give these glowing reports and tell everybody what a wonderful land. Am I losing? Oh, Numbers 13? Okay. Numbers 13, verse 2. God's not saying, check it out to see if you can take it. He says, I'm going to give it to you. But what I want you to do is find out all you can about it. And uh, as God usually works in our lives, faith is not divorced from our obedience to some level. Obedience contained within the promise. For example, what we see when they finally did go into the land is God told them certain things to do. Like at Jericho, you're going to march around. The city every day for a week, and on the last day you're going to go around seven times and blast on the trumpet, and the wall is going to come down. Well, that sounds like a silly way to fight a battle, doesn't it? But faith rest says, number one, I'm going to rest in the promise of God that He will do what He says He will do, and number two, I will do exactly what He tells me to do as part of the condition for Him doing what He fulfilling the promise. So every day they went out and walked around. See, some people get the idea that faith rest means I'm just sort of passive. And God's going to do it. And I don't do anything. No, you do what God says to do within the context of the promise. And so they, um, these particular 12 spies did not quite understand the context of the promise. And we have, you've probably studied the story. I don't have time to go through the whole chapter. But they send them in uh, to the land. And when they come back, skip down in the chapter to verse uh, 28. And we get their report, verse 27. This is the report from the 12 spies, really from 10 of them because there's a two-man majority that understood the promise. The other 10 didn't understand the promise. What they heard was, go see if you can do it. What Caleb and Joshua heard was, I'm going to give it to you, just check it out so you'll know how to take it when I give it to you. The ten that did not listen and misunderstood the promise could not exercise faith because they did not understand the promise. We went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, see, they focus on the problems. They focus on the circumstances. The, the, the people who live in the land are strong. I mean, they've got powerful armies there. and The cities are fortified, huge walls around these cities and very large and moreover, We saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, the Anakim were uh, giants in the land. In fact, if you trace the genealogy of Goliath, which is provided in Scripture on one side, he is a descendant of the Anakim. They were uh, a large race that were men, eight, nine, ten feet tall at that time and they lived in, in the land. And so it said, not only are these people strong in terms of powerful armies, and they have better weapons than we do, but their cities are fortified, and so they're behind strong walls, and then there's giants in the land. It's too much for us. We can't do it. And he says, uh, and it goes on, and then finally Caleb uh, gives them the divine viewpoint. But the principle that I want to point out is to start off in the, in the in the faith rest drill, You have to first know the promise before you can apply it. And you have to accurately understand the promise. You can't go to a passage and misconstrue the promise and think that if God made a promise to Abraham, then you can just willy-nilly yank it out of the Scripture and apply it to yourself because it fits your context and it's going to make you feel better. You have to properly understand the promise. If you don't, God's not going to fulfill the promise, and you're going to think, well, doctrine doesn't work, and God doesn't answer prayer, and faith is irrelevant. So you have to properly understand the context. There are many, many passages in Scripture, many, many promises that you can go to, and I've got a number of them here that I've sort of cataloged or categorized for you. The faithfulness of God. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.89 It gives us confidence in the word of God. It is settled forever. There is no change. There is no variance. God will always rely upon His word and be faithful to His word. Psalm 119.90 Thy faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Thou didst establish the earth and it stands. Another verse on the... Faithfulness of God is Numbers 23:19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? That's Numbers 23:19. The faithfulness of God. We can rely upon God to be true to his word and keep his word. So if God has made a promise, he will faithfully fulfill what he has promised. Regarding personal enemies, Psalm 60, verse 12. Through God we shall perform valiantly, and it is He who will tread down our adversaries. Too often when you get in situations where somebody might be gossiping about you or maligning you, or there's some kind of personal hostility, we want to get vengeance. That's our first reaction sometimes is we want to get back at that person. We want to do something. Well, vindictiveness is never the answer. The answer is to rely upon the Supreme Court of Heaven. Put it in God's hands, forget about it, and move on and let God deal with the people. It's not our job, it's God's responsibility. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Put it in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Don't get caught up in mental attitude, sins of bitterness, anger, hostility, resentment. Just move forward. Hebrews 13:6. so that we can we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Man does not have ultimate power over the believer. God is the one who protects us. What shall man do to me? Hebrews 13, verse 6. Our promise is that we can claim when we feel down or discouraged or depressed. Psalm 37:28. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. In other words, it may not happen now, as the psalmist says in another passage, how long, O Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And that's our experience sometimes. We seem to try to do everything right and go to Bible class and apply doctrine and and there's suffering and and, uh, all sorts of problems and adversity in our lives. But we can rely upon the Supreme Court of Heaven, for the Lord loves justice. He is righteous and He is just. And He does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever. Isaiah 40.29 He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, He increases power. Isaiah 40.29 He, the Lord, gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, He increases power. Uh, Promises regarding strength. Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. It is when we learn doctrine and we store it in our souls and we derive, extrapolate these principles of doctrine from what we learn and we begin to apply them in terms of the stress busters, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, uh, personal love for God, unconditional love for all mankind... Uh, inner happiness, occupation with Christ. That builds this fortress, this wall around our soul. The Lord is our rock. He does this and protects us through doctrine. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Listen to those powerful words that are used in that verse to describe the protection of God uh, for the believer. Then we have promises that relate to the comfort of God. Psalm 22:24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Don't think that God has deserted you, in other words. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. God hears our prayers when we cry out to him. While he may leave us in that position of adversity for a while, it is for a purpose to teach us to apply doctrine and to teach us persistence and perseverance which is the key we have seen to spiritual growth safety Proverbs one thirty three. but he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil he who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil you might also want to look at Psalm four eight and Proverbs 3.24 which relate to uh, sleeping well in spite of difficulty, because God is the one who causes us to sleep well. God's help, promises regarding His sustenance for us. Psalm forty-two eleven. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance, and my God. Psalm forty-two eleven. Guilt. Guilt is a terrible sin that plagues many believers. They produce something that shocks themselves so much, some sin, and they just feel so terrible about it. And they feel so badly that they continue to beat up on themselves because of the fact that they did this and they confess their sin. And then five seconds later, they start feeling guilty about it all over again and they're just back out of fellowship because they're not relying upon the promise of God that He has cleansed us. And purified us from all unrighteousness. And this is what God says, Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. When we confess our sins, He purifies us and He forgets those sins. I will not remember your sins. Psalm one hundred and three twelve. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12 Once you confess your sins, you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're purified, it's over and done with. That's it. Don't worry about it anymore. God has taken care of it. Fear. Fear, worry, anxiety, all of these sins seem to go together. And the Scriptures are very clear that these are some of the most destructive sins to our own souls when we give in to, to these particular mental attitude sins and we have some tremendous promises Isaiah 41 10 and 13 uh, Isaiah 41 10 says do not fear for I am with you do not anxiously look about you for I am your God I will strengthen you surely I will help you surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand and Isaiah forty one thirteen, for I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 uh, promises you should have memorized. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So these are just some promises that I went through the Scripture and called some different ones from the ones I used the last couple of weeks. And you need to uh, uh, just go through the Scriptures, underline passages. Every believer ought to be reading their Bible. Now, you can't call a lot of things out of your Scriptures that, that someone who's trained can get. But there's great nuggets of truth and there are great principles that you're reminded of when you read the Scriptures. You ought to Read through a chapter a day or a couple of chapters a day or Proverbs or Psalms or something like that. Tremendous things. Underline the promises. Take time to memorize those promises and learn what God has promised you, the assets that he has provided for you. So once you learn some promises, then comes the next stage, and that is thinking about their meaning. Meaning. That's what the Bible means by meditation. Think about the meaning. What does this promise say about the character of God? What does it say about his actions? What sort of actions will he take on your behalf in this situation? What does it say about uh, your responsibilities in the situation and what you were to do or not to do in that situation? Think about the meaning of the promises and what is involved there. Third, review the promise over several times in your mind, try to get the. If you can't memorize it word for word, try to get the main content down into your soul. Go over it again and again. Um, point number four: use the promise as a basis for prayer. That's where we're moving into the realm of claiming that promise. You take that promise and you say, Lord, you have promised in Isaiah 41:10 that I am not to be afraid because you are with me. So I'm going to claim that promise and I won't be afraid. I'm going to rely upon you. You're omnipotent. You're righteous. You are the one who vindicates me. You're the one who strengthens me. So I am not going to be afraid. Five seconds later, you rebound your fear. You get back in fellowship and you claim the promise again. Five seconds later, you do it again. Sometimes when life gets so overwhelming, you get back to where you have to operate by the numbers. And you just go through it over and over and over again. But that's what you have to do. I think every one of us at one time or another has found ourselves in that kind of a situation where it's okay, let's get right down to to basics. Doing everything by the numbers and just to get through the situation. Claim those promises and just hold on to them for dear life because they are our sustenance. So point number four, use the promise as a basis for prayer. Five, turn the situation over to the Lord. Lord... Here is this situation and here is what you promised. So I'm trusting you to fulfill your promise. That's it. Move on. Turn it over. Don't come back ten seconds later and say, okay, now I'm going to try to solve the problem and I'm going to worry about it a while. You just turn it over to the Lord and leave it there. Remember, the battle is the Lord's. 1 Samuel 17:4. The battle is the Lord's. And 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Casting all your cares upon Him and then bringing them back. No. Casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Point number six. Faith rest must be consistent and persistent. Two words we're learning from our study of James 1 in the doctrine of endurance. Faith rest must be persistent and and consistent and persistent. Continuous confidence and tenacious trust are the basis for stability in the faith-rest drill. Continuous confidence and tenacious trust are the basis for stability in the faith-rest drill. The opposite we see in our passage in James 1.6 is when you doubt, you're like the, uh, shifting sand, you're like the waves tossed to and fro, and that man is uh, Dysukos or two-souled believer, and he is unstable in all of his ways. The opposite is the believer who has that tenacity, that consistent, continuous confidence in the promise of God. Point number seven. Faith means the absence of reliance on human works, effort, human viewpoint systems of thought. No human viewpoint problem-solving systems. I've often thought about sitting down and saying, well, In in the uh, divine viewpoint realm, we have ten stress busters. Well, what is it in the human viewpoint? Well, they just go on and on and on. There's all kinds of ways that you can try to solve your problems. I don't have my uh, overhead here with me tonight, but let's look at the sin nature. Here we go. We put our baseball diamond up here. And down here at home plate, we have our area of weakness. And this produces personal sin. P.S. for personal sins. So you have a situation and all of a sudden you're under adversity. So you respond from this arena of your sin nature. And so you come up with uh, mental attitude sins like anger, hatred, vengeance, revenge motivation, bitterness, all these things. You think, boy, I can just solve this problem. I'm just going to see the while. And that will take care of the problem. Uh, You might get involved in sins of the tongue. Gossip. Maligning. Somebody has hurt you, so you're going to get back at them by running them down, spreading a public lie about them. Uh, making th- it doesn't matter. You're just going to make sure that, that people understand they're really the one at fault. Instead of ke- using the faith rest drill and relying upon the Supreme Court of Heaven, what you're going to do is you're going to uh, make sure that they get a little suffering from you so you can enjoy it. Uh, sins of the tongue through maligning, gossip. Uh, running them down, whatever it might be, or maybe just overt sins. You're going to take it into your own hands and go get your 45 and shoot them. Okay, murder or theft or whatever, but you're going to handle it through some kind of overt sin. Now, that's, that's obvious. We know that's wrong. But when we move up here to uh, second base on our diamond, we've got the area of strength, and this produces human good. This is the area where we're not susceptible to sin, so we're going to respond in morality. To this situation so we're going to come out we've got a problem here so we're going to try to come up with some human good systems psychology would fall under the category of human good systems for solving problems uh, religion is another human good system legalism is another human good system for solving problems and uh, trying to make life work apart from reliance upon God and the grace of God and of course we have our whole category of lust problems in the middle with approbation lust and power lust and that comes into play and that moves us either towards uh, legalism on the one hand uh, legalism and asceticism on the one hand or uh, uh, licentiousness and uh, antinomianism on the other hand but that just gives you an idea your sin nature is prone to try to solve problems on its own that's its natural inclination it's, it, the hardest thing is for you to uh, keep that sin nature under control, stay in fellowship, and solve the problems by uh, the, the uh, tenacious trust in the Word of God. So, uh, faith must be consistent and persistent based on continuous confidence and tenacious trust in order to have stability. The result of using your sin nature is instability. Point number seven. Faith means the absence of reliance on human works, effort, human viewpoint, systems of thought. It does not mean that you don't do anything. But you let God fight the battle while you focus on your responsibilities. Define, we said earlier, when you meditate on the passage, define what your role and responsibility is in the context of the promise Focus on that. Do your job as a believer as unto the Lord and let God sort out everything else. God is righteous. The Supreme Court of Heaven is still active. Uh, One example to show how we get involved in the process of faith is with David and Goliath. David knew that Goliath was the enemy of Israel and under the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant that that God would give them victory over Goliath. So did he just say, okay, I'm just going to sit back here and let God take care of it. No, he knew that he was going to trust God and he said the battle is the Lord's. But that didn't mean he did nothing. He took what God, the skills that God gave him with his staff and with his, uh, with his shepherd's staff and with his sling and he went out to do battle with Goliath and trusted God that what God had provided him in training would be sufficient to solve the problem. So the battle was the Lord's. He didn't look at the fact that, while I'm going against this armored giant with nothing more than a slingshot. He said, I have a skill with the slingshot, but ultimately the battle is the Lord's. He will determine the outcome. My job is simply to do what I can in the framework of obedience. Romans 4.21, related to Abraham, says, And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Point eight. When the faith rest drill characterizes and dominates your thinking, your panic, fear, worry, anxiety, anger subsides and is replaced with peace, tranquility, contentment, the basis for inner happiness. When the faith rest drill characterizes and dominates your thinking, your panic, fear, worry, anxiety subsides and you have peace, tranquility, and contentment. Now, let's take an example. fairly well-known example. You have... um, Sea of Galilee. Out here you have various waves. And here you have a boat. Make it a sailboat. I'm not a great artist. I never got much past second grade in terms of my stick figures. And out here you have Peter. Peter's out here walking on the water. All of a sudden, he gets his eyes on the waves. The problems. The difficult... Wait a minute, wait a minute. His focus shifts. And faith goes out the window. As long as he had his focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the issue was what God had provided for him, it didn't matter what the waves were doing. Because faith provided the solution. But once he got his eyes onto the the waves, faith wasn't there anymore providing the solution, and he sunk into the water. So the issue at the faith rest drill is your focus. When your focus is on doctrine, the result is peace, calm, stability. When your focus is on the problem, on the difficulty, on the heartache, whatever it might be, then the result is instability. When faith rest drill characterizes and dominates your thinking, your panic, fury, worry, anxiety, uh, and other mental attitude sins and emotional sins subside and you have peace, tranquility, and contentment which are the basis for inner happiness. Being able to count it all joy, James 1-2. Point number nine. Some Old Testament illustrations of mixing promises with faith. I think it's important to look at these because these are real people. Abraham. God appears to Abraham. Genesis 22, I believe. God appears to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, Abraham, and I want you to go up to uh, Mount uh, Moriah and I want you to uh, sacrifice him to me. Abraham said, Sure, Lord. Now, how many people would say, Okay, Lord, I'll I'll sacrifice my one and only pride and joy to you. But see, Abraham knew that God had promised him a seed. And that seed was going to come through Isaac. God had specifically told him it would be this son. So Abraham knew what God had promised all along, that he was going to, through Isaac, be the father of a multitude of people. So even if he went so far as to slit his throat, God would bring him back alive. So Abraham trusts God. In the situation. And just moves out and never looks back. Goes up there. And uh, Isaac. Well what are we going to do? Well the Lord will provide. And the Lord did. There was a ram caught in the thicket. And the Lord said this was a test. To see if you really trusted me. And would rely upon the promise. That I had given you. So Abraham trusted God. In spite of the circumstances. Uh, Another example came later in Israel's history. When they were oppressed. Uh, after 40 years of oppression and enslavement by the Midianites, and you have this great warrior Gideon, and I'm using a little sarcasm, this great warrior Gideon. Now, I just love Gideon because most people think that Gideon was so great, and Gideon was just as weak as any of us. Here's this guy who's standing out there in the threshing floor. Now, that's down below level. He's really hiding out, trying to to deal with the thresh out the wheat so the Midianites don't see him to steal it from. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, O valiant warrior. There's a little sarcasm from God there because at that moment Gideon was anything but valiant, courageous, or being a warrior. Then the angel of the Lord told him what he wanted him to do and Gideon says... I want to make sure this is what you want me to do, so why don't I put this fleece out and you make it wet in the morning and everything else dry. Now Gideon already knew exactly what God wanted him to do. Precisely spelled out in detail. God had already told him. Gideon is not trying to find out God's will by putting out the fleece. He's prevaricating. He's procrastinating. He doesn't want to any more get an army together and go after the Midianites than anything else. He wants to put this off and try to come up with something that's impossible for God to do so that he can rationalize the situation and not be obedient. He knows, exactly that, he knows that this is the Lord because at one point he calls in the Lord and he bows down to worship Him. So he knows God has specifically told him to get an army together and to go against the Midianites. And he's saying, wait a minute, let's check this out. So he's procrastinating. He's resisting. He's stonewalling the Lord. Then he says, okay, Lord, the fleece was wet this morning, the ground was dry, let's reverse it. If you really want me to do this, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. And, of course, the Lord did that the next day. And so Gideon finally had to do it, and he went out and he did battle. Um, but as he did that, as he got the army together, he had to. God gave him several tests that they had to go through to reduce the size of the army until he only had 300 men left who were really committed to the task and then he trusted the Lord and the Lord gave them victory and then uh, he immediately went into arrogance and idolatry and failure afterward so that's typical of people at that era because they just weren't operating on doctrine I mean you look at the great heroes of Judges you have you have people like Samson who just never got his sex life and his, his hormones under control and uh, you have people like, uh, like Jephthah who sacrifices his daughter because he thinks somehow that impressed God. And you have Gideon. I mean, none of these people are, are what we would call, in terms of our framework, great spiritual giants. Frankly, they're one failure after another except for one bright, shining moment in their life when they trusted God, gained a tremendous victory, and so they end up in Hebrews 11 in the uh, uh, Hall of Fame chapter uh, because of their great faith. That gives tremendous hope to the rest of us because we're, we're made out of the same stuff they're made out of. Gideon and the Midianites, and then an example of someone who didn't mix his promises with faith was Jonah. Jonah said, I'm not trusting you at all. In fact, I'm going to catch the first ship out of here and go in the opposite direction. And so the Lord said, well, I'm going to send a big fish and he's going to bring you back. Point number 10, faith rest mechanics is stage 1. Are three. First, faith claims the promise. B, faith applies the promise. And C, faith takes control and stabilizes the situation. That is the first stage, mixing promises with faith. Now we come to the second stage, which is a doctrinal rationale. Now, a rationale is just the underlying reason. Justification or explanation for something. It is marshaling certain things together, certain lines of, uh, or certain principles together, such as uh, God is omniscient, so He knows all the knowable. God is omnipotent, so there's nothing out of God's power, nothing that God can't do. Uh, God, uh, therefore, can solve my problem. He's known about it for eternity past. He loves me, so He'll solve my problem. Uh, That's a very simple doctrinal rationale, just an illustration. Uh, In this stage of the faith rest drill, you focus on the doctrinal reasons or principles that underlie the promise. That's why you have to think about the promise for a while so that you will perceive what the underlying principles are. Second point is that the use of doctrinal rationales depends on having a certain amount of epinosis doctrine in your soul so that you, your faith is maturing you have to start applying some doctrine that's there The claiming a promise is very simple that's where the newborn believer begins he just has a, this, this nutshell form of, of doctrine and a promise but then as the advancing believer learns those promises, learns principles he begins to utilize those principles and to arrange them in a rationale form. So let's look at some examples. Point number three. You have the essence of God rationale. The essence of God rationale focuses on the nature and the character of God. Which under, undergirds his promises. You see it's the character of God that, that is the basis of stability for his promise. We look at his character. It includes perfect justice and Righteousness it includes unlimited power it includes veracity so we know that his word is true it includes immutability so that he, we know he has not changed his mind and so as you come to learn and understand the essence of god you can unite that with your faith as you face any any you see david faced so many different categories of of adversity and in um, psalm 86 verses 15 through 16 we see a little bit of a essence of god rationale he says but thou o lord art a god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth Turn to me and be gracious to me and grant thy strength to thy servant and save the son of thy handmaid. So he petitions the Lord for strength on the basis of the character of God. Another psalm that uh, utilizes this is Psalm 53, 5 and 6. Psalm 53, 5 and 6. There they were in great fear where no fear had been for God. I think I wrote down the wrong verse. I think it should be Psalm 56, 5 and 6. Here he faces a problem. Start in verse, uh, this is one of my favorite Psalms. Let's start back in uh, verse 3 or verse 2. He's just dealing with all kinds of adversity from people, people problems. My foes have trampled upon me all day long for they are many who fight proudly against me. And then we see him look at his problem. When I am afraid, the internal temptation to fear, converting external pressure of adversity and distress in the soul, I will put my trust in thee. Faith, rest, drill. In God, whose word I praise. So his focus is on the faithfulness of God's word. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long, then we go back to look at the problem. All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps, and they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. And then skip down to verse 10. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So we see him using the, focusing on the essence of God and facing the difficulties of his, um, of his situation. Another example is Psalm 64. Turn over a couple of pages. Psalm 64, the first six verses. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. So he's having problems with those who gossip and malign and run him down, spread rumors about him. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow, to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustice, as saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot for the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. But God, verse 7, focus on the solution. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. So he puts his trust in God who he knows will vindicate him. He is focusing on the, the um, uh, supreme court of heaven as the solution for his problem. He is not going to try to deal with it himself but rest upon the Lord. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God is the one who sustains us. Never be tempted to take the problems into your own hands. For example, if we look at the essence box, we have to know the essence of God. God is sovereign. That means He is the ruler of creation. He is perfect righteousness, plus R. He is J for justice, L for perfect love, which will be our subject in Galatians on Sunday morning to understand properly the love of God, that it has nothing to do with human emotion and sentimentality, but that the love of God is far superior to human conceptions of love. God is eternal life. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. God is immutable or changeless, and He is truth, veracity, V for veracity. As in terms of using the essence of God rationale, it's the sovereignty of God. As the absolute authority of the universe, God is in complete control of every circumstance in life. Jesus Christ controls history. Point number two, God's righteousness. God is perfect goodness. He is sinless in His character and person. Therefore, His solutions are always correct and accurate. He always has a lesson for us to learn, and it is designed for our particular circumstances. Three, in terms of God's justice, God is absolute fairness. Therefore, you have no right to become angry or bitter in your circumstances. God is absolutely fair in everything He does. Point number four, love. God consistently loves His own perfect righteousness. That is in you, the believer, at the moment of salvation. You possess the righteousness of Christ. So God will always love you with a perfect, infinite love because you possess the righteousness of Christ. And since you have this imputation of of His perfect righteousness, God will always stand by you in the midst of the most devastating of circumstances. Five, eternal life. God is eternal. He's always existed. There never was a time when God didn't exist. He has no beginning and no end. And we know that billions and billions of years ago, in his omniscience, he knew of your problem and he provided for that problem. It's no surprise to God, although it may certainly surprise and shock us. Point number six in God's omniscience, God knows all things, which include both the actual and possible past, present, and future. He has always known the best solution to your problem and has provided that solution from eternity past. In His omnipresence, God exists in all places at one time. He observes all things. He is the eyewitness to every circumstance in your life, and He will always act on your behalf from a foundation of complete knowledge and perfect righteousness. In His omnipotence, God is all-powerful, unlimited in His ability And his authority. And he is able to accomplish anything necessary to solve your problems. In his immutability, God cannot change. His word cannot change. He will always keep his promises and be faithful to them. And he honors his doctrines without question. When you claim the problems, you know that God will solve them. Veracity. God is absolute truth. So if he said something is true and you can rely upon it more than you can rely upon anything else, in life. That's the essence of God rationale. Another rationale is the plan of God rationale. In the plan of God rationale, we know that God has had a plan for us from eternity past. Billions and billions of years ago, in the foreknowledge of God, He knew who we were, what we would go through in every detail of our life, including every problem and every difficulty we would ever face. Since God foreknew us, He expressed His will and purpose for us in eternity past under the doctrine of election. And in that, He has provided a plan for our lives that provides a solution for everything. So we know from the plan of God that if we are alive and breathing, God has a plan for our lives. And that plan is for our good and not for our evil. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No adversity can separate you from the love of God. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. That's Romans eight thirty-seven. So God's plan includes working together every circumstance in our life for good. For we know that all things work together for God works all things together for good to those who love Him. Well, we'll pick up next time, which will be in two weeks. We'll come back finish up doctrinal rationales, go to doctrinal conclusions, and then uh, move forward in our study of James. And we'll see that the next verse takes us into another problem-solving device, which is grace orientation. And we'll learn what that means and how we can apply grace orientation in our lives. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for our time this evening and Your Word. What a wonderful... uh, privilege it is to read these promises uh, that you have made to us and to realize, Father, that that you have cared so deeply for us that you have provided for every difficulty, every adversity, every situation, good or bad, you have provided the resources we need to face life. Father, we just pray that you would help us remember these things, to apply them to our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.